Father, we come into this season of the year with hearts of gratefulness. And if they're not grateful, we are praying that you would uh, give us perspective and insight and uh, show us in our hearts, show us in our lives how deeply you have loved us and give us great cause for thanks. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So apparently we are involved in pre-Thanksgiving messages here. And then, actually, pre-Thanksgiving means also pre-Christmas. You've got to look at the right place, right? I was looking at an old preaching calendar I had and um, uh, digging up my old notes, and I realized I have preached this message 12 years ago in Kansas, of all places. And I thought to myself, why in the world did I preach it around November 1st? And it hit me again that um, this is sort of the running up to uh, Thanksgiving. Because what happens after this, and it depends on when Advent starts, because it starts every year at a different place, sometimes, most often in November, but sometimes the first week of December, uh, is also the preparation then in looking toward Christmas. So what would it be about Malachi? If you're reading Malachi, you realize it's a fairly dismal reading. And uh, what would it be about Malachi that would get your hearts ready for thanks, and especially today's topic, protection against a bitter heart? And um, for me, uh, in the series on Malachi, uh, the refrain that goes through the entire series of the first four verses of Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, and you say, how have you loved us? And I think that's the most important passage in the book because using that passage and understanding what they missed will show you why they fell into every other thing they fell into. If you miss the Lord's love, uh, you can just imagine it's like missing a turn someplace. You wind up in a totally different location. And there's something about being mindful of the Lord's love uh, that takes away a lot of stuff because Malachi is sort of like the first Corinthians of the Old Testament. You find all sorts of good stuff to preach on in there. But it all comes from, unfortunately, one source. They missed the most important thing they needed to pay attention to, and that was that God loved them. And therefore, maybe they didn't have a heart of thanks. So if you want to look at this sermon a whole different way, what we're attempting to do is put the turkey back up on the altar, What, yeah, what did that mean? Well, doesn't it say something in Romans about to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? See, God doesn't want a whole lot of things from us. I mean, in terms of what is the most important thing, the most important thing is that our lives are a perpetual living sacrifice to the Lord. And Chuck Swindoll is accredited with the saying that the bad thing about a living sacrifice is it can keep crawling off the altar. So therefore, in getting ready for Thanksgiving, getting ready to give thanks, we need to get the turkey. How we define that would be us, I suppose, back up on the altar. Because if we're back up there, then we're seeing life in perspective the way it ought to be seen. With thankfulness, understanding how God has in fact loved us. So that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, these last few weeks for me and Laura have really been a change. But uh, again, 
sort of the exercise of how to give thanks to God in having a major change just suddenly sneak up on us. And, um, uh, you know, I keep thinking about something John told me regarding how they train Navy SEALs. They give them sleep deprivation to see how much they can still function. This is all before they, they completely lose their minds. But to get them to function under sleep, well, I, I think Laura and I are there right now. I mean, uh, she's up several times during the night with a sore arm, you know, because the sore it gets, the better it's healing, apparently. It seems counterintuitive to me. I saw the x-rays this week, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, if I ever repaired something the way this is looking right now, they should take away my, my, my husband's badge, my, my garage ownership badge. They should take away my DeWalt tools and my wood glue and everything. That doesn't look the way things are supposed to heal, but apparently that's how they're supposed to heal. So we're giving thanks to the Lord that um, good things uh, in the midst of all this have worked out well. So these people in this particular historical situation, they have been now back in the land after the exile for about 140 years. Malachi is that last book before the 400 silent years happen. And I think these people, especially when you read the, the last chapter of Malachi, you get the idea um, that this is the end of the track. And God is going to set them up as only God can. And sometimes, sometimes bitterness, sometimes opposition, sometimes challenge has to overwhelm our heart in order for us to fight and get the right perspective. Who's the one who fights and who's the one who gets the right perspective? Um, how do you uh, keep your heart stable and all that? That's what we're going to be talking about. And these people have gone through that. You can imagine what it was like for them coming back to Israel after having been in Babylon and having been in Susa, in the lush uh, Persian region there. Susa, they would have had great marching music. I think that's where that came from. Is it something about Susa? Anyway, forget that. Um, Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world. Wow. And then somebody stands up and say, but we belong to God and we need to go back to Jerusalem and we need to, and Ezra does his best in Chronicles to build up their national identity. It's amazing what he does. If you read Chronicles from that perspective, you understand that Ezra, I mean, we would not know David the way we know David if it were not for Ezra and understand what a man of God he was and how deeply uh, in love he was with God and how he formed the, the worship of Israel. But you have to understand what they were leaving in Babylon with their businesses. I mean, Israel flourished in Babylon and in, in Persia. They were going back to the ruins of a ghost town. It wasn't just a ghost town. It was a dilapidated ghost town. They were going back to a place that had no city gates. They were back, going back to a place that had no city wall. It took them 20 to 30 years to finally get the temple back up and going. That was the first assignment. When you read the book of Ezra, you realize that Ezra is probably writing at a time way past the life of Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were the guys who were supposed to build a, rebuild the temple. 
So the thing is, you go back there, and now you've been in the land for 140 years, and it's like, I didn't sign a contract to live a life like this. I didn't sign, you know, this was supposed to be glorious. This doesn't look glorious to me. We may have been excited coming across the desert, but now that we're here and we're back in the land and things just are not going right. The crops are failing. Um, We're living on the edge of our finances. And therefore, can you really blame people for holding back a little bit? Surely God understands. A sacrifice is better than no sacrifice, right? If you take the lame one in, you know, God understands that because I need the good one for breeding. You know, so we're holding back. And not only that, we're discontented with life, and discontentment has an awful effect on marriages and how we treat one another. God surely understands what we're going through. And so, God catches the people at this point in Malachi. In Malachi 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Boy, are they about to get the answer. But just looking at this phrase, this phrase is pretty important because the thing is, this is the same kind of stuff that can happen to us, right? You start out in the Christian life and I I started out with a rush. I mean, this is the biggest excitement in the world. This is like every action film and every adventure story I've ever heard of. So what does that look like? 20 and 30 and 40. I've been doing this 47 years down the road. What does that look like? Is, there, is it possible that some bitterness, some... Uh, not even not even that it looks like bitterness, but it, it's just like, um, oh, what do you call it? Um, not recognition. Um, uh, we, we just kind of give up. You redefine everything as being, uh, you know, you lay the bar down on the ground. Or what about marriage? What about, isn't marriage supposed, I mean, holy matrimony. Holy matrimony, Batman. I mean, it's holy matrimony. It's God bringing two people together and two people become one flesh. These are partners. These are like Adam and Eve going, and it winds up kind of like Adam and Eve. What happens then? How do you work through that thing? And what about your job, your career, your your in your 40s and 50s, you may even be in your 30s, and you see that where your life is going is a dead end. What about that? Isn't there some bitterness? Where is God in all of this? And see, this is one of the questions they're asking. Now, what's interesting here is the Lord says to them, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You don't want to weary the Lord. But what it means here, and one thing is that, and something we all understand, is you just get tired. It's just tiredness. You've tired the Lord with your words. But that word also has another little aspect to it, and it's irritable. Now, you don't want to get God irritable. But you can understand, anybody who has had children or had to take care of their parents understands what, what kind of is going on here. Because it's the idea of here I am serving you. God is saying I'm serving you. And he has no problem. He says it's your words that have worried me. Not the fact that he's serving them. But what you're saying. The, maybe the lack of thanks, thankfulness. The lack of appreciation. The lack of... I remember 
I don't know if any of you have done this, but standing in front of my four kids, silently in my head thinking, you know, you guys, you know how much work it is to keep you alive? They didn't care. It's just, where is this? And, you know, anybody who's had to take care of their parents, um, you know, that is one of, that, that can't, depending upon who your parents are, that can be one of the most thankless jobs in the world. And do you get worn down? Yes. Do you get weary? Yes. Do you become irritable? I, I confess before you that <laughs> this has happened. And this is happening to God, and God is saying that you need to be careful. They're not seeing things in perspective. Now, what they're saying is very interesting. Um, how have you wearied him by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, you notice the word bitter isn't in there. I put that in myself. When a person gets to the place where they're wondering, is it really worth serving God? Really? Don't other people come out looking better than we do? They're not worried about dotting every I and crossing every T. And they're not worried about this and they don't have to do that. And isn't it true that, that, that people who totally disregard God, they come out better sometimes. Now, we may not think that we do that, but it's that idea of, of, of saying, is it really, really, really worth it? What does God want? What does He want from us? And is it really worth it to do that? And you know what I find in my life sometimes? It's worth it not to do it. But the word bitter, if you have a Bible, look at um, Job chapter 9. Now, the thing is, Job, of all people in the world, has a right, I think, in a way, to kind of express himself the way he does. So nine, Job 9.15, I'm going to go through this pretty quick. He says, although I'm innocent, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Well, that's pretty bitter. Um, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. It's a, if it's a contest of strength, behold him. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I'm innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. Am I blameless? I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Pretty bitter man, and he even used the word bitter in there. When disaster springs, sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. Is it not he? Who then is it? You can't fool Job. God has something to do with what's happening in his life. And he's bitter. You know, you notice none of these verses are used by Hallmark as Thanksgiving card quotes. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee. They see no good. That would be an encouraging one. And then you get down to verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Things just seemed unfair. And of course, he had three friends with him who were beating the drum and trying to convince him he had sinned when he hadn't sinned. 
And so the thing is, these people in Malachi's day are saying exactly the same thing. It's almost like justifying themselves. Isn't it right for us to say, why put so much effort into this thing? Why really trust God? Because the thing is, he doesn't really care. Because look, he blesses the ungodly. You will never, I don't know if you guys realize this yet, you will never make as money much money on this earth as Bill Gates has already given away. Never. Never. And Warren Buffet, that, that Frenchman from uh, Omaha. Anyway, the thing is, is that why does God prosper these people? Why isn't He prospering us? Why isn't He, and, and the questions go on, and in that questioning, we're missing something. And we may be missing the biggest thing of all. The fact is that he has loved us. Now, the virtue of reading the Bible, okay, this is part of the application here, and I've, I lost track of time when I need to get out of here. I need a big thing down right up there that says, get out of here. When I preached this message, by the way, it was 45 minutes. You know, so anyway. The point is, we are missing things. We read the Bible, and see, that's supposed to encourage our hearts, and it does to a place, Right? So even for the people in Malachi's day, they could read their Bible and they could see, they could see that God really had blessed Israel, but it was so far in the past. What is happening while you're suffering right now? But, you, but even in the book of Malachi, what's so interesting, when he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, and you say, how have you loved us? The nearer component is what Pavan touched on, and that is that they came back out of exile. Coming back out of exile is unheard of. Nobody came back out of exile. They came back out of exile. And when you see what God had to do, and then they ask the question, how have you loved us? It's like, guys, open your eyes. But there's something even more strategic in living with God. And this is why you can never, should never give up on God. Because of what He does daily. When you expend yourself for Him. See, the children of Israel, as they're going into the land with Joshua, what basically God is saying to them, remember this, but as you serve me, here's what you're going to see. You know what they got to see? They got to see the sun stand still and the moon stand still. Woo! You don't see that one every day. They got to see their own miracles. As they lived lives of faith and continued to hope in God, they would see acts of love every day. Maybe not every day, but you know, those things are cumulative because we all go through this thing where something difficult comes into our lives, but it's, it's masking this great thing that God's going to do. What happens if we break down when that thing happens in our lives? What happens when we don't pray 21 days like Daniel did and we give up after 18? You don't get that great deliverance. You don't get that great message. And that's what they were missing in doing this. They weren't allowing the things that God had done in the past to strengthen their hearts, remembering who they were, and then to keep doing what God was asking them to do. They were not able to sustain the hope of their hearts because they were not doing what God wanted them to do. What would have happened if they would have given those sacrifices? God was going to bless them. He would have multiplied them. See, here's, a, here's another connection. When 
the Israelites gave up building the temple, God sent them two prophets. One was Haggai. Haggai comes in and what does he say? You're building your own house. But have you noticed that you put like, you, you, you plant all this seed and all, you, all you've got is like this little bushel barrel, bushel basket full of stuff? God's warring against you. Give him what he deserves and he will pour out abundantly as a man gives. So God gives back. I mean, it's sort of this principle. If we hold back on God, He holds back on us. And it gets terrible. It was terrible in, in Zerubbabel's day. It was terrible in Malachi's day. But in Zerubbabel's day, they listened to Haggai. And God blessed them. The application for us is the same. We need to do exactly what God wants us to do and not hold anything back. And it has something to do with putting that thing back up on the altar, that living sacrifice. That's a hard thing to do because what does God require of us? If it was just as easy as getting up on an altar, that would be easy. If it was just as easy coming to church every Sunday, that would be easy. He wants so much more. Actually, He just wants everything. And that's everything we don't want to give Him. And so what God says to them here. And you've seen this in the book of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. You say, how have you loved us? They missed it. So at this point, because they bring up this whole deal with justice, there's some bad and good that's going to come out of it. Um, God says, you want justice? So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And in my version it says, And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. So I send my messenger, John the Baptist. And, and, and this isn't the end of the book of Malachi, because he's going to spell out John the Baptist even more. But he's saying, you want judgment? You want to see justice? Okay, so here it comes. And it becomes very quickly very apocalyptic. He is going to send John the Baptist, the messenger, to prepare the way... And John, what was John's message? Was it, was it light and flowery? Was it full of hallmark sayings? No. He says to the entire group of people standing out there, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And the people with open hearts, they listened. We don't want God to talk to us like that. But the point is, is he says, you want justice? You want to see that I, the Lord, really play fair? I'm going to send my messenger. And then you're going to see the Lord who you desire, and he will suddenly come into the temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Boy, but he's not going to be what they were expecting because their hearts aren't right. But here's, to be fair, some people's hearts were right. After those 400 years, you find Joseph and Mary, and these are two people who are really tracking with the Lord. You find um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, uh, down to the letter. You find Simeon uh, in Jerusalem, but he's quite a guy, right? So there were some people who tracked, and you'll even see it here in the book of Malachi, there will be some people who will listen. But what he's... The apocalyptic element is important too because what happens on a fair level when we're all saying, you know what, it just looks like the bad guys always win. 
Do the bad guys always win? No, not at all. Because there's a king sitting on a throne. And he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Now, shouldn't that give us hope? You know, we, we live in, uh, there are other people who live in countries where every time they vote, they know it's baloney. In, uh, in Belarus, they, they had a weird, bad election there. A lot of people, a lot of good people, a lot of Christians got thrown into jail because it was a crooked election. Now, I know if Zuckerberg and all those guys are hearing right now, I'm not going to get thrown in jail for this one. But, you know, the point being is that those people live with that. That's their every day. And we come into what happened last November, and, you know, depending upon how you fall down on that one, it's like, I don't know who I can trust anymore. You can trust the Lord. You don't need to get a bitter heart. Because see, that's where the prophecy and the apocalyptic element, the, the fact that he reigns on the throne is important for us every day. Not only how has he loved us, but the fact that he is coming again. You know what made the brethren so powerful? I mean, I say powerful, so, so influential. It was not how we meet on Sundays. It is what they were teaching in times of despair, after the Civil War and the, the Spanish flu and the Depression and the First World War and the Second World War. They were showing that Christ is coming again. What would happen if Hitler would have won? That wasn't the end of the story. What would happen if Idi Amin wouldn't have died? What would have, you know, you can take all of these things. God is still on his throne. He was on the throne when Nero took Paul's life and he took Peter's life and countless other Christian lives. He reigns. And unless we can grasp that, and it means something to us every day, that root of bitterness can slide in. Resignation, that was that word I was looking for. Resignation, we resign ourselves. This is how it's going to be. Where does the hope come from? The hope comes from Him constantly showing His love to us and us constantly reviewing in Scripture that He's coming again. That little baby who came on Christmas Day, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn baby king. And as sure as He came that first time, He will come again and He will set everything right. So should we have hearts of hope? Should we have strength of life? Of course we should. And this is why part of the reason why He is saying this to them. But the other part is to allow them to understand, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God look like? Going to be pretty grim. It would be fair, don't you think, to warn them? I think so. Because it's going to be pretty bad, actually. But, and, and, you know, in Amos 5, you know what we want? We want the day of the Lord to come. And, and he says in Amos, he says, don't pray for the day of the Lord. Because it is a grim day. You see what it did to Jeremiah and what a heart Jeremiah developed, what he had to live through, seeing his own people 
being slaughtered in front of his eyes, seeing their sin and seeing them being slaughtered, that's not a good thing. The thing right now is that we're working in such a way, hopefully, to save a couple of those people before they fall into God's hand. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller sulfur. Refiner's fire first for his people. To burn stuff out of us. To purify us so that we're useful. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to God. You know, isn't it funny how Malachi begins with that whole idea of right offerings? And you know what God's going to do when he starts coming back to these people? He's going to say, okay, where did we leave off? Oh yeah, you need to present the right offerings. You need to be willing to live sacrificial lives. So he's going to refine them. So they're saying, where's the God of justice? The God of justice is going to show up and they're not going to like it. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. I mean, we've seen all of this in one way or another in the book so far. Against those who oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, a bunch of those titles are in the judging of the sheep and the goats. The thing that happens just before the kickoff in the millennial kingdom. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God does not change. And to that you can only say hallelujah. When we follow God, when we make that decision, and we're always having to come back to that place, being willing to be on that altar, he renews his love over and over again. It's always been there. But it's that we are able to sense it. You know, I don't know about you, but um, I have to constantly think in my life, where has the Lord been blessing me. Actually, I have a thing, uh, like a journal I keep every day, of the things the Lord is doing, where I know I need to praise his name. I have other things that are in my office that remind me of things. And I'm just going to share one of them with you, but, but this is what I want to say. And, and you know me, so I'm going to throw this in anyway. If we're doing what God wants us to do, if our lives are being lived on the altar before him, and we're, we're following him. We're, we're actually trying to be salt and light. God will give us miracles all the time. Asking, seeking, knocking. Jesus says this so often. And God, because he's a great father, is going to show you. He's going to strengthen your faith and give you more to go out with. So um, when we were in Germany, and this was actually during a pretty hard time of our being in Germany, um, Beth had made friends with this family, the Auten family, and they had a son who was basically Greg's age, and her husband was a brilliant atheist. So, I mean, Christoph and I, then we would kind of get together and we would talk, and he was so brilliant. I mean, it didn't matter what I talked on. He would, he would manipulate me to get me up over the tree level, and then I would feel like I've got all these lasers on me. He'd blow me right out of the air. He was so brilliant. Killing his marriage, but brilliant man. Anyway, 
he and I and our two sons, we go out one time. We go to Belgium, and there's this cave in Belgium, so we're out there. And I'm praying like crazy for Christoph. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to do with an atheist, you know. But, you know, we're, we're friends, and we're talking, and our kid, you know. So we're out there, and as we're going back to the car, his son just starts, Dad, Dad, let's go on the river on those little boats, those little paddle boat things, you know. And Christoph's, no, no, I said, I said, Christoph, let's do it. So anyway, we go down there, and I'm wanting to pay with a card because I'm, you know, as an American, I'm always cash poor. Well, as a German, he's got plenty of bucks in his pocket. But the thing is, his smallest bill is 100. So we go down there, and it's going to cost us 20 marks. So Christoph is sort of satisfied in his own heart. It's not going to work. Let's go back. I told you, he didn't want to have fun anyway. So we're going back up to the car, and as we have to cross the street, you know, they, how we have those little bike paths there. So right in front of us, there's this bike path. I look down in the bike path, and there's a, um, uh, a money clip for Juventus Turin. Soccer club. You guys know Juventus. Anyway, but that wasn't what was important about the money clip. It was full. It was full of money. I couldn't believe it. I'm looking down there. I had not seen a $50 bill in so long. I didn't know what to do with mine. Is that what's on a... Is Ben Franklin... What bill is he on? Is that a 50? 100? It was a $100 bill. I thought it was funny money. I really did. I hadn't seen a, a new U.S. printed bill in so long. I'm picking this up and I'm looking at it. And they were all folded in there. And the only thing I could figure out is some guy was blazing along and he just made a mistake and that thing fell down there. So what I do is what, I'm nuts, right? So I pick it up, I run into this, uh, there was like a a cafe there and I go in there in my best English and say, are there any Americans in here? No, no Americans. And then, so I go down to the visitor place, welcome place, and I say, has anybody reported losing money? And she says, no. So we walk out of there. And and I and Christoph and I both agree it's no use giving it to the police or anything. They'll just wind up keeping it because this is just sort of somebody was on the bike path and they went by and and they're fifty miles down the road now. I say, Well, I guess I guess I'm you know, the Lord meant me to hold on to it. Now here's the thing. I open these six hundred dollar bills and I'm not making this up for the world, right in the middle. Is a 20 mark shine, a 20 mark bill. That's what we needed to go on the the paddle boat thing because they wouldn't they wouldn't break his hundred. They didn't have German money to break a hundred mark bill, but it was 20 marks, and it was 20 marks. And I could just see Christoph scratching his head, going, "What's going on here?" You know, and it wasn't anything I said to him. It was God interrupting our situation and saying, you've been praying, your fault. <laughs> this is what I've been into. So if you come into my office, there it is, Juventus Turin up there, and I look at that thing, and I just think to myself, God is always working. And if you keep yourself on the altar, you keep striving to follow Him, He will give you evidences every day of how wonderful and great he is and you will only ever then even in difficult situations come back to those things and you will say god is wonderful and i give you thanks 
And hopefully, as we enter the season, you'll be able to spend some time thinking back, not only on your life, but also in this, this, these last few weeks, these last months. What has God done for you that has just been cause to praise Him? That will keep you from having a bitter heart. And then remember, He's coming again. And that's what we'll be celebrating once we get to Christmas. He came the first time. He's coming the second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We don't deserve at all your love and grace to us. And actually, sometimes when we're in bitter circumstances, we make a spiteful decision to ignore. But you need us to work through those things, to come back to those myriad of things that you have done in our lives that show us that you care for us and your heart is inclined toward us. You're a father who always wants to bless his children. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us never to give up on you. It is so easy to have our hearts conform to this world and to take our cues from them, but our hearts should belong to Jesus Christ because he died for us because he lives for us, because he sits upon the throne. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness, that you would help us to review our lives, that we would just look into your word and see how amazing you are to those who follow you, and to give you great thanks and praise as we enter the season of Thanksgiving, and then acknowledging that our Savior has come and will come again. Thank you for your love. Amen.